Welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast which brings you the leading voices of the social design movement. I am your co-host Emiliano Gandolfi, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host Eric Kessel. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Uh, we've got a great one for you today. We're continuing with a theme of designing with resource scarcity, and we've recruited a rather brilliant engineer uh, to talk to us about some of the work that he's been doing in the developing world across many different platforms. Yes, we're speaking today with Ashok Gadjil, uh, who is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Berkeley, California. And he's also a founder of a lab that is called Gadjil Lab. Um, Gadjil is it's actually a, a star in all our field because he, he has been inventing and uh, a number of techniques, especially uh, uh, researching the way in which we can purify water and make more efficient stoves in uh, basically for the bottom 20% of the population, of the world population. And, you know, it sounds like basic stuff, but his work is incredibly brilliant, and he's working on problems that, you know, affect a hundred million people, a billion people, really massive, massive social problems um, affecting the bottom billion, um, and his solutions are incredibly elegant. Uh, you're going to be astounded by how simple some of these solutions uh, actually become. Yeah, I think more specifically, he mentioned one billion families. So we're talking about, you know, a huge amount of, of people that are in fact are, are, you know, living intoxicated by the smokes of your stove or drinking water that in, is in fact uh, not drinkable. So we're talking about, you know, the essential issues of our uh, contemporary world and specifically issues that uh, relate very much to, to other issues as gender, because usually it's women cooking with stoves. So it's, it's actually something that is really affecting, in, you know, injustice in a very direct way. And that's part of what I loved about this interview is he really puts a human face on the engineering and talks at length about, you know, it's not just about the technical solutions. It's really about creating a social process um, that makes sure that those technical solutions get get adopted um, and that people start using them and that change actually happens. Yeah, I really love when he was talking about, you know, how to get the best technologies according to a specific community and how amazing technologies that were developed before were, in fact, very impactful in the lab, but were completely not adopted by communities. Right. So understanding the culture is a fundamental aspect. And that's what I really love of uh, Gadjil's work, is that he's really trying to mediate between uh, the technical knowledge and the communities. That was um, a funny mental image for me of, you know, a bunch of Oxford PhDs sitting around, like, thinking up some invention, and then, you know, it's just um, getting completely discarded. But I think Ashok's process um, has really triumphed over that, um, specifically because he has put this human face on the engineering. But he, he explains it better than we do. So uh, should we get to the interview? Absolutely. It's a really, it's a really inspiring one. Ashok, I think that what really interests us about your work is that you've been consistently uh, researching ways in which uh, to, from a technical perspective, alleviate poverty, or at least alleviate the issues that are connected to poverty in terms of uh, uh, access to, uh, to, to water, uh, to uh, clean uh, cooking stove, and actually, you know, to, to a decent life. How did you actually start with your interest in, in this field? And where do you think you're having, uh, you know, your, your maximum impact? I started in this field with really a background in physics. All my degrees are in physics. I was getting my PhD in physics in general theory of relativity at University of California, Berkeley. And while 
you know, PhD students have plenty of time to think about what is it that they really want to do. <laughs> and I, I was sufficiently good at physics that I kept on going until I, I was in the middle of my PhD. And then I said, is this what I really want to do? <laughs> what is going to be satisfying as a lifelong career in terms of something that is meaningful to me? And it seemed to me at that time, and it still seems to me today, that mainstream physics research is sufficiently divorced from near-term impact on what I consider to be burning problems. It seemed like my intellectual life was getting farther and farther away from what was meaningful to me. So that's how I kind of veered mid-career during my PhD studies to doing applied physics. That brought me to doing solar buildings, heating and cooling of buildings uh, with very low energy design. And that got me into fluid mechanics, heat transfer, and then eventually got me into environmental engineering. And there I found a discipline where I had an opportunity to use my technical skills and formal educational training to also address problems that were meaningful to me. That's a time when people get to do their best work. So I'm lucky to be here. And what specifically were the problems that, that leapt out of you and, and drove this transition? Uh, the particular problem that really bothered me, even when I was a student, was the unsustainability of where society is going. And that knowledge grew upon me with more and more conviction as I ended up concluding even my graduate studies, which were in mid-1970s, that if all the world achieved they will achieve at some time, aspire for and achieve the level of prosperity that was being enjoyed by the first world at that time. Uh, the earth couldn't bear the demand on resources. And then we are all toast. So there was something really wrong with what we were headed. And that looked like a problem sufficiently alarming and near term to really give me pause. And, and how did you address, I mean, obviously, you know, we're facing an extremely unequal world, but how did you address inequality? I mean, which were the most urgent aspects that you thought you could address? I didn't quite know that in the beginning, what to address first. I started by looking at what are the problems. And it seemed that uh, with my technical training and formal education, I should be able to address problems that relate to energy inefficiency among uh, the poorest people on the planet, because it, it just so turns out that the poorer the people, uh, the less efficient they use the energy. It's quite the opposite of what, what one would think. And the least efficient of the appliances for cooking is a three-stone fire that's used by the very poorest of the poor. Either they didn't have the technical ability or they didn't have the upfront investments or the energy efficient equipment just was not within their reach. Ashok, could you, um, for our listeners, describe what, what is a three stone stove and, and subsequently what was what was the innovation that came after that? A, a three stone fire is exactly as the words suggest, three rocks of roughly equal size, about, let us say, maybe a, a 30 centimeter diameter roughly rough rough piece of rock, something like that, placed on the ground. And those three rocks or three stones then support a part above them. And in the space 
that is left open below the pot, one lights uh, twigs and firewood or whatever biomass is available, you know, twigs and grass, dried grass and so on. So that's the most primitive way to cook for, I would say, almost more than a billion people now, even now. Wow. So, and basically, you know, of course, this is like, you know, the, the ground zero of how, you know, poor communities uh, survive cooking just daily in uh, for, on three rocks. And but I think that then there was a lot of research done on how to improve this condition. So how did you go from the understanding the condition to actually develop a product that could arrive to these communities? I, I would want to take it in two different steps. First of all, one needs to understand what is it that these people want. Most, almost exclusively, the cooks are women or girls. And the firewood is also being collected by women or girls. So it's exclusively also a gender problem mixed in there. The efficiency of the stove is actually a product of two different efficiencies. There is an efficiency of combustion, which is defined as what fraction of chemical energy of the wood or the biomass, broadly called, gets converted to heat versus what remains as unburnt embers or charcoal or charred wood uh, or some fraction comes off as smoke, which has very adverse health effects. So that is one efficiency is one fraction gets turned into heat. And then the second efficiency is the so-called heat transfer efficiency, which is what fraction of that heat gets transferred into the pot because ultimately you need heat in a pot and all you have is chemical energy in the biomass or the firewood. So the ultimate efficiency is a product of these two and both have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, good stoves uh, try to improve both. Moving from that technical innovation, Ashok, how do you get um, an idea like that to spread? How do you organize communities or, or international aid or distribution networks so that a technical innovation really becomes a social solution? That's a very good question. For a long time, particularly from the 70s, since people tried to disseminate fuel-efficient stoves, fuel-efficient stoves programs have earned a bad reputation. And that has happened for, I would imagine, maybe two or three reasons. First is that fuel-efficient stoves is a very complicated subject because of, as I said, combustion engineering comes in there, heat transfer engineering comes in there, design process comes in there, and that requires sufficient technical knowledge that the field in the past was hugely dominated by white-collar, highly educated academics or engineers. That's unfortunate. Men who never had cooked on three stone fire in their life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and who usually spoke very technical language and they were trying to develop a product for nearly illiterate, extremely poor women with whom they did not socially interact, except as maybe in photographs, you know? So that left a big gap between understanding what do the women cooks want? It also unfortunately led to this unequal power uh, equation where the academic types would say, I know what's good for you. Here is a stove, go away, and if you don't like it, that's your problem. Figure it out and use it. Now, that never works. You need to design a product that not only is technically very good, but it must 
absolutely be delightful for the user. You cannot shove it down their throat ever. It was a huge mismatch. So that was one of the three problems. The second problem was that oftentimes whether these toes were accepted or not in actual dissemination programs was determined by conducting face-to-face -face interviews. And these face-to-face -face interviews also led to a lot of misunderstanding because the poor households, women, poor household women who were interrogated or interviewed about, oh, do you use a stove? How often do you use it? Do you like it? Why don't you like it? Blah, blah, blah. All those interviews led to, again, misinformation being given to the interviewer because that's called a courtesy bias. The disempowered, politically weak, and economically poor women would give the answers that they thought the interviewer wanted to hear. Hmm. So they would tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, we like it very much. Thank you, you know, because their hope is maybe next time we'll get a blanket. Maybe next time we'll get something useful. But oftentimes the stove will be kept there in the corner unused. And we found it again and again happening. So basically the interviewer is uh, changing, uh, I mean, with his own presence, is changing the environment that he's uh, asking to. Not just that, but the interviewer is well-dressed, college-educated usually, right? Urban and local person is obviously looking at the interviewer as somebody whom they would like to be on the good side of. Exactly, but Ashok, how do you solve this this incongruence, this uh, this kind of level of, of distance? We do it two ways. One is, first of all, we have to be we have to recognize it. First of all, if you don't recognize it, it's going to bite you and crush you, right? So you got to recognize it and be very, very sensitive and be respectful of the fact that we don't know how their world is. And we have to learn as much as we can. How is it to walk in their shoes? Even inside their homes, women and girls within family politics, they often don't have as much power as the men do. Men often control the cash. And if you are trying to get them a fuel efficient stove, they can't build it themselves. It requires cash access. Uh, women's labor is devalued because they are giving it free, collecting firewood and cooking and inhaling the smoke worth several packs of cigarettes every day. Whereas the wow. cash flow is usually in the hands of men. So there is also the third dimension, which is a political inequality. One addresses it by two ways. One is being sensitive to it and trying to learn, almost like an anthropologist does, what is their life like? What is it like to walk in their shoes? Given that there is a vast field of studies called anthropology that exactly does that, there is a lot for engineers and scientists and designers to learn from how anthropological research is conducted. That is one. And secondly, we found that we could now design physics-based, engineered, low-cost, high-reliability, small, non-intrusive sensors that we can attach to the stove that we can collect six months or 10 months later, that give us minute by minute data on how the stove is being used, whether it's being used, at what temperature is it being used, and so on. And that is extraordinarily revealing of how the stove is actually used or how it was actually used versus 
what were the answers from these face-to-face -face interviews. We did both and we found even among our sympathetic uh, customers or sympathetic uh, users, the verbal answers were no good. They're, they're no good at all compared to the real hard data. So on, on one side, you're introducing another discipline that is anthropology that helps you to define a dialogue and a better understanding of you know their needs. And on the other side, there's also a technological advancement that allows you to test uh, progressively the performance and the use of each uh, uh, stove. But you know, once you process all this data, I mean, you still have to get you know the stove out to a number of people that means you know possibly i mean if we have 1 billion individuals it's probably 200,000 250,000 250 millions excuse me uh, uh, families that are out there waiting for this product to be yeah 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 actually the number is of billion families there are 3 billion people who use biomass cooking on primitive stoves Okay, well, so th th that's even, even, even <laughs> yeah, more overwhelming. How do, how do we reach them all? So can't do it from top down, of course, and cannot do it by charity. One has to figure out a way in which one is very sensitive to the cost benefit as perceived from the end user, right? So, for example, when we work in Darfur, in Darfur, uh, there are refugees, but there are also non-refugee population. The nonprofit that we founded works with other nonprofit in Darfur called Sustainable Action Group and uh, sells the stove for, for this cost of production, uh, $20, and people are happy to buy it at full cost in the villages. But in the refugee camps, we just raise the money to give it away because refugees really are uh, destitute. The start of the work on the Berkeley Darfur stove was aimed specifically at the refugee population in the camps. So those stoves were uh, given away at zero cost by raising money in the United States through a nonprofit. But then villagers in Darfur complained, hey, how about us? So we said, sure, you can have them too. They are low cost, but you have to pay for them, and they happily pay for them. All this went on till 2015 when the Sudanese government shut us down because they wanted to charge very high customs duties that this nonprofit cannot afford. But we showed that it can be done. There are 46,000 stoves uh, in the hands of 46,000 families, saving each of them $1,700 worth of fuel wood over the five-year life of the stove, just for one-time $20 payment. A powerful place to take a quick break. No one go anywhere. We're going to be right back with more Social Design Insights. Welcome back to Social Design Insights and to the second part of our interview with Ashoka Gadjil. After looking at the improvement of lives through stove technologies, we will be looking at other crucial issues that Gadjil has been investigating in order to improve the lives of the bottom billion. We'd like to pivot a little bit, Ashok, from fire to water, just so we make sure that we cover everything. And we wanted to start off with, with your project UV Waterworks, which for the benefit of our listeners was addressing uh, an arsenic poisoning crisis in Bangladesh that was affecting tens of millions of people and has been described as the largest man-made poisoning in the history of mankind. 
Um, and I know you and your team dug into that problem as well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, of course. Uh, there are two different problems, okay? One is the biological contamination of drinking water, which occupies 80% of hospital beds in the developing countries. And that biological contamination is addressed with UV waterworks. That's an entirely separate technology, and that is now licensed to a company that is operating in five countries, serving 7 million people a day. There's a startup that came out of California, but works in India, Bangladesh, Ghana, Liberia, and Nigeria. Uh, but that's separate. And then this arsenic poisoning is a separate technology that is specifically focused on removing arsenic from groundwater that is used for drinking. So <laughs> tell me what we should talk about, given our time limitation. It would be really interesting to hear more about uh, the poisoning because this arsenic poisoning, it's such a, an invisible uh, component that is having such a dramatic effect on, on a very wide population. How does the arsenic get in, in the water system in the first place? So arsenic gets in the water from natural causes. Arsenic is an element that is very widespread in the crust of the earth, depending on whether the particular a silt in the top soil has arsenic, that arsenic can leach out into the groundwater aquifer. And in Bangladesh and in surrounding areas in India and also in, now it turns out in Cambodia and Vietnam as well, and, and other parts of the world, arsenic has leached out into the aquifers, into the groundwater. And when that groundwater is used for drinking because there is no surface water available, then you start pulling up this aquifer water that looks harmless because arsenic is colorless, tasteless, and odorless. Extremely small quantities of arsenic can cause havoc over a long period of time when it's ingested through food or water, in this case, water. So people are basically facing a choice between drinking water, surface water that's biologically contaminated and dying quickly, or drinking water from the aquifer that's arsenic contaminated and dying slowly. That's unfortunately the case. Uh, but in many places now, there is no surface water available at all during the dry season. So they just have a choice of either just going thirsty, which they cannot, right? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't live for six months of the dry season without any drinking water if the only source has become a, either a hand pump or you got to walk 10 miles just to get to a source of surface water, which is impractical every day. You developed this electrochemical arsenic remediation technology, right? And this was a, an invention from your lab? Yeah, 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 very much. So electrochemical arsenic removal, ECAR, just the acronym, is a way to put in a small amount of voltage between 3 and 10 volts DC uh, onto plates of steel that are immersed in the water. That causes one of the plates to dissolve, anodically dissolve. That's called anodic dissolution. It creates a particular kind of rust in the water that binds to the arsenic and it coagulates and is able to remove arsenic very, very effectively at a very low cost. This is a quite large device, so it's it's you know done by one village or one community. It, it's not like an individual pump uh, attached to it. You're right. It, it, it is a large device only because we want to reduce costs. If you were to design a device like this for household use, it is possible. But then what happens is the cost gets charged to that single household, leaving the poor people out of reach again. Right? 
But if you do it for the whole community, then the cost is distributed. There is economies of scale suddenly becomes very, very affordable, even to the quite poor people in the community. Give us a sense of scale, Ashok. When we talk about being very cost effective and affordable, what are, what are we talking How much does it cost for a village to have clean water for a year? Let me give it as a cost per liter of water that has been cleaned up, uh, which includes all operating costs. It includes amortized capital costs, and it includes the salary of part-time, two part-time operators. We just operated for last 10 months a plant, a full-scale plant, a pilot plant, first of its kind in West Bengal, India. And we are confident that this water can be priced, including commercial profit, for companies who would license it. And there is a company that has licensed the technology as well, an Indian company, can be sold for about two US cents per liter of water. Wow. So that's affordable to local people, per, given that your, say, per capita income is a couple of dollars a day, and you actually need to drink a couple of liters of water a day. That's four cents. And the nice thing about it is it covers all costs, including a, a business return for the company that will install these plants, uh, which is my vision of how it can really go to scale. But so, Ashok, I think that you know you have been uh, looking at inventions to uh, improve the you know the bottom twenty percent life of people in 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 the world. Looking at you know how to reduce uh, the, the fumes from uh, burning from burners, so domestic pollution somehow, mm-hmm. and then clean water. But looking at the future, is there another uh, issue that you are looking to uh, to address? Oh my God! Yes, yes, yes. We are not short of problems. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately. (laughs) We are short of bandwidth of how much we can do, right? So another problem we are working on in my lab, in my team, two other problems I'll mention on the water side. One is how to take fluoride out of water. About 60 million people get severe skeletal fluorosis or exposure to high concentrations of fluoride in the groundwater they drink, uh, all the way from Ethiopia north and south on along the east part of Africa, all the way down into Mozambique. You find very serious dental fluorosis and skeletal fluorosis. The most serious pockets of it exist in South India and also Central India on the west western part of Central India. So the standard treatment for removing fluoride from groundwater to make it safe for drinking is unaffordable to these poor people. That is using activated alumina. Our goal is to reduce the cost by a factor of between 10 and 20. And our results in the lab in the past year suggest that we have a way to do it. So we are excited about this greatly. And in the next couple of years, I look forward to actually conducting initially some field tests and then a pilot scale plant and so on until we can hand it off to some nonprofits or to industry. Well, this sounds like a very optimistic solution, um, and maybe we can finally tackle this as a, a public health problem. Ashok, we know you have to go in a few minutes. Um, Emiliano, did you want to try and squeeze in a last question? Uh, I think, Ashok, you were telling us about a second uh, field uh, that you were still researching. Yes. The second field that we are researching is how do we actually figure out this field is about stoves, okay? Because there are a billion different households that use biomass, 
and they all cook in different ways. It is wrong to think that there is going to be a single stove that is going to be a solution to a billion different households. So we would like to figure out how do we provide these sensors that allow for getting us out of this blind spot so we can actually begin to understand if the different stoves that are being made that are suitable to different cultures, to different kinds of foods, to different kinds of cooking, are they actually being used or not and how are they being used? Those sensors will provide the insight for, I hope, hundreds of groups who will then design hundreds of different stoves which are efficient but also loved by the end user. That's the second direction in which we think we can be the enablers of a much larger group of people creatively doing designs of stoves that are suitable for a variety of foods, cooking styles and cultures. Well, Ashok, I think this is remarkable. I think that what really you know intrigues us, and this is also the reason why we're honoring you with the, with the you know the Curry Stone Design Prize, is that really you're bringing this uh, community perspective to engineering, and also you're showing that engineering is not about you know a silver bullet uh, solution, but is about really implementing a variety of solutions to a variety of different problems that affect you know, different contaminations of water or different communities in how they cook uh, uh, daily. So it really shows how engineering can actually uh, go closer to communities and develop, you know, long-lasting solutions. Absolutely right. I think that's a very good way to capture it. And I'm greatly honored to be selected for this prize. This is... um it's a big, big honor. Thank you very much. Thank you for honoring us with your, your presence and your wisdom. And um, I know our listeners will, will find this particular narrative inspiring. Thank you very much, Ashok. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We'd like to thank our guests of the week, Ashok Gajil, for sharing with us his insights into how to design with scarcity. The pursuit of global equity necessarily requires creativity, but looking for innovative, cost-efficient solutions is only half the battle. Engineering solutions must become human solutions if we're going to fix all these problems. To learn more about Ashok's work, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com. There you'll find examples of his work, narrative histories, and some links to further your research. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Design Prize and the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the latest news on social impact design. Shine, shine, shine,